Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY program where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. I'm your host, Claire Holtz, and today's episode is titled, Eating Disorders Aren't Just a Thin White Woman's Disease. Joining us to tackle this topic is Jamila Hellstrom from the EMILY program. Hi! Hi, Claire. Good to be here. Yeah, we're happy you're here. Can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to be on Piecemeal? Yeah, Piecemeal is, I think, such a lovely, lovely way for the EMILY program to talk about um, eating disorders and lots of intersections, right? So if that's nutrition, if that's race, like today, and appearance, and... um, just really anything having to do with eating disorders, the Emily program does it. And so podcasts seem like a, a really sweet way to get the word out even more than it already is. Yeah, I agree. And we also have a ton of listeners that don't go to the Emily program. So we try not to make this podcast too Emily program specific because we want it to be for folks in all walks of their eating disorders, whether they're just starting it or whether they're struggling with it or whether they're starting recovery or they're recovered, kind of wherever they're at in that process. So we try and make it welcoming to everyone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like the title, Piecemeal, right? Everybody's out here trying to make peace with food and just enjoy their lives. And so I think that I think that's awesome. So I know you a bit because we talked before we started recording, but our listeners don't. So I am going to introduce you for them. Jamila is a pre-independent licensed therapist at the EMILY program. She began working with adolescents and their families at the residential level of care. And she now works with adults in both outpatient and intensive day treatment settings. There, she's responsible for individual client caseloads, as well as running programming, groups, and meals. Her formal education is from the University of St. Thomas, where she conducted research on eating disorders within the Latin American and African American populations. But her life experiences at the EMILY program have taught her the most. When she isn't working here for us, she enjoys being a newlywed, listening to music, speaking Spanish, and trying new activities like rock climbing and learning to play the guitar. Can you tell us a little bit about how your rock climbing and guitar pursuits are going? (laughs) Oh, man. I started rock climbing this past summer, and it is a blast. It's kind of expensive now that I'm thinking about it, but it's so, so fun just getting out there with ropes or without ropes and bouldering and the shoes and the chalk, and it's just like so many aspects that I had no idea were a part of rock climbing, so that's been really fun. And yeah, guitar... That's been going pretty well. My fiance, well, my husband now, which is crazy. (laughs) He was my fiance and he taught me uh, how to play the guitar while he was abroad in Costa Rica. So we did some FaceTiming and some Skype dates and that kind of stuff. And he taught me and now I play at church, which is really fun. So speaking Spanish, are you a native Spanish speaker or did you also learn from him? Is he Costa Rican or did you just meet him there he he's from Minnesota I'm from Minnesota but we both just have a love for all things Latin America and so he spent two years in Costa Rica and before that he traveled all around he's in Honduras and Panama and just kind of all over and then I um I lived in Mexico for just a a stint Mm -hmm. how was it when you lived there so so great I think that really solidified uh the my desire to conduct research on this kind of stuff. I had always known I wanted to work at the Emily program since I've been 16. And so when I got to college uh, and studied abroad in Mexico, those two worlds kind of collided. And I said, eating disorders aren't just a thin white woman's disease. This is incredible. And so... What a plug for the episode title. (laughs) 
Yeah, and so it was literally just like, what in the world is going on? Like, what is happening? And so I got to talk to a few people down there and came back and, and continued to fall in love with Mexico and Spanish and Costa Rica and Spain got to go to. So all things having to do with uh, Hispanic and Latin American culture. Were you there for the research you did through St. Thomas? I was there actually during my, <clears throat> pardon me, undergrad, and I went to undergrad at Augsburg College. So I studied abroad twice during undergrad, and then um, I've gotten to go back a few times uh, since graduating, spend some time with my host family, um, just stay connected with the Augsburg community down there and the program that I was a part of. But uh, the formal, the more formal training for this kind of stuff, eating disorder kind of stuff, was mostly for undergrad, yeah. And how was St. Thomas? What did you work on there? St. Thomas was great. Um, it's a very, very good school. Uh, and the time that I spent there was mostly about my own uh, development. And so they're really big into the self of the therapist. And I think I had an opportunity to, to take all of my experiences from Mexico, Augsburg, the EMILY program, all of the things that I had been doing and so in grad school, kind of putting them all together and doing some research just on African-American populations. I'd spent a good chunk of time in uh, Latin American populations and so really getting back to some of my roots and thinking about eating disorders in my own life and uh, family members and kind of what that looked like. So that was the majority of things I did at St. Thomas. For this episode, we're talking about the intersections of eating disorders, race, and appearance. And you talked about the research that you did on both the Latin American and African American populations. Can you talk about what you learned doing that? One of the things that is really, that was central to the findings was the rate of um, seeking care in, in populations and really just this idea of we know, right, that eating disorders aren't just, indeed, a thin white woman's disease. And so having eating disorders across certain populations, I've found that even though they're prevalent in certain populations, and actually all populations, I would say, um, they're not, all populations aren't seeking treatment at the same rate, at the same effectiveness, maybe access to care, barriers to care, and then the quality of care once they're in treatment. And so that's one of the, the bigger discrepancies I think that I had found over the last few years. I'm assuming that some of that comes from the idea that eating disorders are only a white woman's disease. So there's the big stereotype that if you've never heard anything about eating disorders, you're probably just going to assume that it's immediately an adolescent white teen that has one. Mm -hmm. How does that play into who has access to care and what the quality of care is? Yes. So stigma is, I think, just a huge thing, a huge barrier. Stigma within the family, outside of the family, and really perpetuating this idea that I can't receive care because I don't fit this mold, right? Or that they can't help me because I don't fit this mold. And so when we talk about quality of care um, and competency of providers and things like that, where unfortunately we've seen lots of people don't know how to care for certain populations or perhaps don't have um, the experience or I guess confidence, because we do see a lot of similarities and overlap and, and I think that's good across eating disorders in general, no matter where you came from, no matter 
what you look like, anything like that. And so I think there are, are providers out there, but uh, we just, I think we could do better. There's the case study that is on the NIDA website, the National Eating Disorders Association's website. So for the study, they presented an identical case study that demonstrated disordered eating symptoms in white, Hispanic, and black women. And then they asked clinicians to identify what the problem was in the case study. So ideally, they were supposed to identify that the patient in the case study had an eating disorder. However, only 44% were able to identify the eating disorder in the white woman's case study. Only 41% could identify it in the Hispanic woman's study and only 17% could identify it in the black woman's story. So that just, for example, demonstrates that providers aren't only missing eating disorder diagnoses, they're missing them specifically for black women. So black women are getting misdiagnosed at astronomically higher rates than white women. So I'm wondering what we as providers can do to combat that. Do you have any suggestions? I assume that medical training is largely based on what is detectable, what's tangible, what can be caught on screening and evals and these sorts of things. And the truth of the matter is that they don't pick up on a lot for minority populations, that the measures that we use are struggling, (laughs) to say the least, I think. And so as providers, I would say um, being you know, on your P's and Q's really with emotions, with the intangibles, internal experiences that are going on for your clients, um, the negative self-judgment, the trauma, the family dynamics, these sorts of things, and not necessarily taking the role of therapist or anything like that, but really I think using, using a more holistic measure of a person rather than maybe the tangible screening tools that we typically would see in a doctor's office. There's also research out there, it's on NIDA as well, I'll link to all of this in the show notes, that says people of color are more vulnerable to eating disorders. Do you believe this is true? I think that historically ethnicity used to be a protective factor, but not anymore. I think there's some research that kind of backs that up. I I speak a lot from like a Mexican culture uh, and African-American culture, but even, you know, in Puerto Rico, Cuba, other places, Central, South America, Latin America as a whole, um, traditionally idealizes curves and maybe a larger physique, something like that, right? We know that these populations are very interdependent, very close-knit, just value relationships and community, collectivism, and place tend to place less value on appearance with regard to um, social roles and value. So appearance not really being a a strong indicator of social roles and values. But I think being in the West and being really hung up on value and worth, being wrapped up in our appearance and our identities, the messages that minority populations perhaps get from their families and communities that larger bodies are beautiful and curves and embrace them and all of these things perhaps don't fit the mold that mainstream culture is selling and are really, I think, bumping up just more against the Caucasian white cultural ideal that um, thin is, is better. So, 
yeah, I think that there used to be a protective factor there that is diminishing with every population, every generation rather, that's here in the United States. And, um, and that's something that I think we need to be on the lookout for. That's an interesting way to look at it. I know the study, it was about people of color in the U.S. specifically. And what they were saying is that people of color that live in the U.S. that are exposed to this very white, very thin beauty ideal then feel additional pressure to meet that standard, which isn't natural for their body in a lot of ways. So it's saying that that's an additional risk factor placed on them to develop an eating disorder. Um, Would you agree with that from your experience as a provider? (laughs) Yeah, I do. I think that... uh conflicting views are really hard for anybody and conflicting views about your body are especially difficult Um, and so again just thinking about family and all the pressures that tend to come from again we'll call them maybe latin families african-american families there's there's a lot of pressure right it's collectivist we're making decisions together your body isn't your own right you're going to sacrifice and Um, take this job, do this thing, get married, don't get married, like a very um, communal aspect of it. And when that message bumps up hard against the mainstream culture that is perpetuating and very, very, very concerned with looks and appearance and um, body dissatisfaction, I think that there's some increase for eating disorders that happens. How can providers spot eating disorders in non-white clients? Is there anything they should be looking out for? Are all of the signs and symptoms exactly the same? Or are there some key ones that we should have our eye out for? One way might be to be abreast on co-occurring disorders, knowing which disorders tend to kind of go hand in hand with eating disorders. And so things like depression, anxiety, trauma, um, abuse, so uh, social, um, substance use, obsessive compulsive tendencies, I'd say being alert and staying curious to the eating disorder traits as well. And then there's signs for everybody, I would say maybe some would be rigid rules about food, displeasure with your body, maybe baggier clothes, maybe going to the bathroom, uh, following meals, things like that, that show up across populations. Eating disorder recovery really relies on acceptance of not only yourself, but also on those around you, especially in treatment, having some degree of acceptance. How do you think treatment centers can work to promote inclusivity within a treatment center setting? Yeah, but where's the balance, right? It's true. Where's where's the striking of, I see you, you're different, and also we're one and the same, right? Your story is my story, you have an eating disorder, I have an eating disorder, Um, I get you, I'm with you in that. I think the balance, and so much of it does, I think, come back to the self of the therapist, being aware of their own stuff, their own multiculturalism, their own dimensions and facets and um, biases as the provider. And then just working really, really hard to close the chasm between us and them. And um, me 
and her, right? These differences rather than bridging the gap because uh, we're all relational. We're all relational beings, I believe, created to be in relationship, be connected to others. And I think at the heart of our, of all this, and perhaps people of color even do it better coming from a collectivist culture, um, they want to be included. They want to be feeling like, wow, I get loved on here. People people understand where I'm coming from. People get it. Yep, it's not the same. Yep, there are some differences. And I still feel welcome. And they can still help me. Um, We're not asking for 100%. I understand and I get it. And bending backwards to make me feel so, so great and welcome and all of these things and put out all of the stereotypical things that you think I might want to see, like, no, nothing like that. But I think as much as um, as much as we can as providers within the treatment setting to, I think, really just be empathic and say, like, no, you as a person, a whole being, multicultural, um, from this neighborhood, um, with this family dynamic, with an eating disorder, I see you. And that, I think, goes a long way. You talk a lot about the collectivism and community in treatment. For folks that have never been to treatment or don't really know what it's like, what does that mean? What do we do that's community-specific? So I know, I personally know, that we have groups and we do group meals and things like that. But since you actually work in the treatment facility, what is that like? Yeah, it's really, really good when we can create an environment that clients feel uh, again that they're not alone and so it's one thing to hear something from a staff or from same with family right it's one thing to hear something from your mother and then the 10th time that maybe a friend or whatever says it you're like oh yes okay fine like I will pick up my socks right whatever the thing is and so at in programming um, I think we work really hard to foster good interpersonal relationships between the clients. Of course, staff have a hands-on role and are facilitating, we're leading, coaching, modeling what that looks like in the groups and one-on-one settings as well, but really letting the clients um, drive treatment, really letting them drive the groups, the dynamics, we're constant feedback. We're in constant communication, receiving feedback about Um, groups and what the content of the groups are to that specific community, right? We have curriculum and we follow it pretty closely, but if there's a group that's really, really struggling with um, body image or really wants to dig into mom, right? Like every single client or maybe nine out of the 10 clients are really struggling or having a hard time with dynamics with mom. Um, We do tailor our, our group to that and build that cohesive community um, around <clears throat> around that theme. And then one other thing that we do is weekly community meeting. So uh, the community gets together and talks about what's going well, what's what they're liking in programming, what's going really well at meals, support that they need, support that they wish they saw more of from staff or from their peers. Um, so room for improvement, growth, and then Clients give kudos, staff gives kudos to you to clients, but really just um, highlighting progress and congratulating people on 
on all of their success in programming and really just, again, building that cohesive unit. And then lastly, we see a lot of clients uh, hanging out outside of programming, which is is good <laughs> in lots of ways. And, and again, just building that support system that once they leave these walls, um, they're not alone. And staff, of course, is here for them as well, but really just working hard on their own time to surround themselves with people who are like-minded in their recovery. Do you feel like that communal aspect of recovery in a group setting, so like most of our treatment programs here at the Emily program are, do you feel like it facilitates a longer lasting recovery because folks are able to develop those connections? Yes. Yes, and I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but even working in the adolescent house um, with the family-based therapy that we would do over there, sometimes uh, we we know, and there's, I think, some good research on the Emily Program's website even, or maybe Nita, about recovery rates for people who have um, family involved. What actually is a therapy session like at the Emily Program? One of the beauties, I think, of the EMILY program is that treatment is individualized. And with individualized treatment comes individualized therapy. So therapy sessions might not look the same across providers, but I would say, um, by and large, a lot of the providers adhere to maybe a more CBT or maybe DBT model, which are... um, going to be seen throughout the therapy session. So really breaking down the thoughts that are related to the feelings, which are maybe leading to some of these maladaptive behaviors, but also working with things like distress tolerance, working with um, interpersonal effectiveness, mindfulness, kind of building up our toolkit and our skills so that when things do arise, because it's life and they do, um, we are more equipped to handle them. So some some. Therapists might dig a little bit more into trauma um, and to more of the past. Um, Others might be more so focused on the current behaviors and current maybe environmental um, influences, situational things that are maintaining those behaviors, which is more so what I would adhere to, really getting at what kinds of things are set up in our lives right now that are maintaining these behaviors. And we kind of dig into the past a little bit to see where they maybe started or maybe get a clear picture on that stuff. But by and large, um, I think that we're more so focused on what kinds of things are maintaining these behaviors and what can we do, how can we shift our thoughts and then be equipped with skills when they do come. So don't be scared of therapy is what all of that means. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't be scared of therapy at all. And and by and, and more than anything, therapy is a relationship. We wanna we wanna hear you, we wanna hear your story, we wanna see you, all of you. And you're right, it is kind of scary to let it all hang out there, right? To tell somebody your deepest things, ins and outs, but um sometimes like we don't ask that, right? If you wanna share that, you can share that, but Um, More than anything, it's a a relationship, a therapeutic relationship, and um, really just a a safe space to be able to talk about what is going on in your life and hopefully get you set up with some more tools to uh, keep fighting and keep living, (laughs) living this crazy life. It's crazy out there. One of those tools for recovery is motivation. So before we wrap up this episode, what's your favorite advice to give clients in recovery? 
I don't know about favorite, but one thing that I do try to make sure clients understand is that recovery is difficult. It's very hard. And so um, not in like a self-defeating sort of way or like a Debbie Downer type of situation. I hope it doesn't come off like that. But in this, I I more so want to convey this idea that recovery is is a whole new lifestyle. It's a whole new way of thinking, a whole new mode of being in lots of ways. And so that's difficult. It's difficult to integrate and to um, maybe master and to figure things out. But really just remembering that you're not alone. Like I said, recovery doesn't happen alone. And so there are people, <clears throat> your, your therapist, your treatment team, friends, family, there are people that want to walk with you, want to walk alongside you, um, want to fight with you <laughs> because it's a battle sometimes out there, right? Seeing, seeing people and going to certain places and family events and all of, <clears throat> excuse me, all of the things that might come up. It is, it's sometimes um, a struggle and, um, and a battle, but it's worth it and it's, and it's, it's good. It's good on the other side. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jamila. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. If you enjoyed this episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, review, or share it with your friends. If you'd like to learn more about what we do at the Emily Program, you can find us at emilyprogram.com or on all social media at Emily Program. If you have any questions or want to be featured on the show, you can email podcast at emilyprogram.com. As always, we wish everyone well.